Hey guys, it's Karina, and this is the God Besotted Podcast. Uh, this is the third time I've tried to record this and didn't hit the record button, so hopefully this one takes. Um, I'm excited about today's episode. We're going to talk about number 16. Even though numbers can seem a little scary to some people, um, this is actually a very relatable passage, and I think we're going to find it's extremely relevant for us today as Christians. We're going to be talking about pride and power versus pursuing the calling of God on your life. We're going to talk about status-seeking versus of service. And we're going to look to Jesus as our example of humility and how God exalts those who are humble in his economy. So I think it's going to be a good time. I hope you stick around and let's just go ahead and get into it. So number 16, verses 1 through 11, it says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this, take censers for yourself, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi." Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? So to recap, some people came against Moses and Aaron and accused them of exalting themselves above the assembly of the Lord, the congregation of Israel, the lay people. And they accused Moses and Aaron of making exclusive divine privilege and divine responsibility of leadership, saying that since the Lord was in the midst of the people and all the people were holy, all of them should have leadership. And at first, the accusation sounds like it's an accusation that Moses and Aaron had assumed too much responsibility and should give it to the people. It sounds like it's it's a invitation for almost a democratic government. But when it gets to the heart of the matter, and Moses cuts straight to the heart of the matter, it turns out that actually it's an accusation that is leveled at Moses and Aaron for the aim of establishing them as the leaders instead of Moses and Aaron. So it's actually a deceptive accusation, and Moses sees right through that immediately. In the rest of the passage, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and on, all their households are punished for their insubordination, for their rebellion. Moses makes it clear that their rebellion was not against him and Aaron, but against the Lord. So let's unpack this a bit, starting with verse 1 and 2. It describes who came against Moses and Aaron. It says it was Korah, 
who was a son of Levi. He's a cousin of Aaron's. With Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. These are Reubenites who took action and led a group of 250, it says, men of renown, people who were chosen in the assembly. So these four leaders took action along with 250 other leaders, and they came against Moses and Aaron. At this point in the narrative of Numbers, Moses, who's Israel's leader, has already dealt with many challenges. And some of these are the, you know, the usual ta- uh, challenges of leadership. And some of these have been dealing with issues of rebellion. He's already had to squash a rebellion from Miriam and Aaron. And now the sons of Korah, start another one in number 16. So who are Korah and who are these people that are being discussed? The sons of Kohath, which it says Korah was one of those, had been chosen for a special work. This has already been established in the book of Numbers early on. They are named first constantly in the book and in the lists of the Levite. So Levi had three sons, and of these, Kohath was the second born. Yet Kohath is listed first consistently, reminding us of the way that God likes to work. He likes to put, uh, to choose the people whom he is going to put in positions of leadership and, um, and who he's going to call based on his own sovereignty, not based on birth order or based on who people assume should receive higher honor. And so Kohath was the second born. From the line of Kohath, Kohath comes Aaron and his family and um, other families, including Korah's family. Now, of these sons, Aaron and his family are the only Levites chosen to be priests. They're the only ones you can intercede for the people. In Numbers 4, it's a description of the family of Korah's responsibility in the economy of God at this time. And they had the very high honor of transporting the holy objects of the tabernacle um, as Israel traveled. So Aaron and his and his family being chosen for the special duty of priesthood, they would carefully cover each object in the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant, uh, so that the sons of Korah, or, or Korah's family, I should say, was able to transport these objects to their next location and, with, and would not touch it and die. And if you need a reminder of how important it was to transport these holy objects, you need look no further than the infamous story of Uzzah during David's day, while David was king, who died when he touched the ark. He reached out to steady it as they were carrying the ark to Jerusalem and perished on the spot. And the reason for that was that they were carrying the ark improperly, and it demonstrated a lack of reverence on their part. But the the point is to drive drive it home that the work that the the Kohathites, including Korah's family, had was very important. Although they were not the priestly family, uh, they had the very, very high honor of caring for and transporting the holiest objects in Israel's uh, worship service and in the tabernacle. And so um, the sons of Kohath and Korah specifically, who leads this rebellion, they had been chosen for a special, special work, but it wasn't enough for them. Korah and the Reubenites, um, Dan, Abiram, and on, who accompanied him, and also the 250 leaders who accompanied them, they accused Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves. But Moses saw straight through this, and like I said before, he cut straight to the heart of the matter. In verse um, 10 of number 16, he says that they had gathered against the Lord. 
they he cuts straight to the heart of the matter and says that their problem was not with Moses and Aaron and their leadership, but their problem at bottom was a problem with God and his sovereignty. No one gets promoted without God allowing it. And every person who's in a position of influence or power was chosen by God to be there. He is the only one who humbles and who exalts. Moses, we know from Numbers, I mean, from Exodus 3, hadn't even wanted to accept the leadership of God's people. He stuttered his way through five excuses why he did not want to be the leader of God's people. And that's how we know that he was the right man for the job. His reaction to this accusation was to fall on his face and to say that he was going to let the Lord reveal who was his. And that's the difference between status seekers and uh, servant leaders. When we lash out at people for overlooking us, we are not looking hard enough at our feelings of being slighted. If we looked harder, we'd see that our problem is not with people at bottom. Our problem is with God. And so the question for us today from this passage, I think, is where are we dissatisfied? Where is what we've been given, the calling and the gifts and the special place of honor and the blessings that we've been given not enough for us? Where are we wanting more than what God has promised us? Where are we, quote unquote, desiring the priesthood? It may be specifically wanting what someone else has or just something that you don't have. And so the question to ask is, is it not enough for us? All the blessings that God has given us or are we seeking the priesthood also? I think a good parallel passage to um, contrast the difference between seeking status and seeking influence and power out of uh, pride and being a servant and being willing to be used however God wants to use us is Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul famously tells the Philippians to mimic the humility of the Savior in a hymn, uh, a very important Christological hymn that starts in verse 5 of Ephesians 2. But before he gets there, he lovingly tells them that he wants to see them reach their full potential of unity and love being united in the spirit intent on one purpose and in verse 3 he says do nothing do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others and then in verse 5 he uses Christ as the example for this humility he says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he's going to go on to say, therefore, work out your salvation. And then in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This passage is so important, I think, as a corollary to number 16, because it describes the um, the dichotomy between selfish ambition, between status seeking, and being servant-hearted. And it just shows sharply the distinction between what God exalts in his economy and what man exalts in his own flesh. For first question, we have to ask is what is selfish ambition 
A good example of selfish ambition is the Tower of Babel. It is literally seeking to advance yourself, to make yourself great, to build an empire for yourself at the expense of or without regard to God's purposes for you. In Romans 1.17, Paul uses the same word about uh, some preachers who were seeking to preach Christ out of selfish ambition. What a heinous idea. But he says basically that although he was in prison, they were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, seeking to cause him distress. They thought that Paul was like them. They thought that if he saw them preaching Christ and having success in ministry while he was locked up, that it would bring him distress. But he says in that passage that as long as Christ is preached, as long as the truth of the gospel gets out there, he's content. He has no problem with who's preaching it. He didn't have a superiority complex or a need to be at the front of that mission. He was going to be exactly where God God placed him. And if that was in prison, then that was in prison. In the Gospels, James and John are another example. There's a famous instance in which they come up to Jesus and they request to be seated at his right and left hand in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies that if they wanted to be exalted this way, they would be having to be willing, they would have to be willing to drink the cup that he was going to drink, i.e. to suffer and die. And they said that they were willing. Jesus prophesied that they would indeed drink this cup and they were martyred. But he says, still, it wasn't his to just dole out these honors in this way. In God's economy, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. James and John were seeking to advance themselves and asking for something that wasn't theirs to ask for. God does not honor people who honor themselves. This is a very big deal to God. Selfish ambition, jealousy, envy, these topics, pride, are extremely important, and yet I think they get a pass as sort of unseen, acceptable sins in our churches. We more often hear sermons about abortion and homosexuality in churches across America than we do about pride. And I think that that is wrong. I think that it's an undue um, emphasis that we need to preach the whole counsel of God. And something that is extremely important in God's economy is the difference between seeking status and seeking to promote yourself and seeking God's purposes for you. Selfish ambition, status seeking, looking for power and influence like Cora and his company did in number 16 is the complete antithesis to God's heart in the scriptures. And we don't have to look any further than this example of Jesus in Philippians 2. Jesus, who was the only one deserving of highest honor, chose instead to humiliate himself. I mean, I think people understand that Jesus stooped to come down to earth, that Jesus um, went out of his way to be a um, savior for mankind. But I don't think we properly think of it often enough as a deep and thorough humiliation for the Son of God who possessed equal uh, divine privileges and equality with God um, to stoop so far as to be taking on human flesh. The frailty um, of human flesh is completely um, a humiliation and a condescension for the Savior of the world to do that. And yet, he is our example of serving. He chose to serve us and as a result, God highly exalted him. James, in chapter 3 of his epistle, says, 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. If these are issues in your heart in any way, um, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to whoever's listening, jealousy and selfish ambition are not things to shove under the rug. They are not things to um, leave unaddressed. Because where those things exist, James says, there's disorder and every evil thing. He talks about selfish ambition as springing from demonic wisdom from natural worldly wisdom and this is i think the point this world um is like cora in philippians 2 paul is going to continue his his commands um, after telling them to be like christ and to serve like christ he's going to say do all things without grumbling or disputing now scholars are kind of divided on whether this is referencing grumbling and disputing at god or at people and i think the best answer is that it's both it can be both because they both make sense in context and in this context when he says do do all things without grumbling or disputing paul says that you may be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation the nasby puts it crooked and perverse this is language from deuteronomy 32 which is spoken about the wilderness generation the generation that we are talking about in uh, this passage in number 16 and so this world is crooked and perverse this world is like korah and his cohort of men who came against Moses and Aaron. This world would do anything for power, for status, for influence. James says this is natural wisdom, worldly wisdom. Living by selfish ambition, by the desire to promote yourself, is not how God operates. God's In God's economy, the people who are exalted are those who suffer on behalf of others and, and for the sake of the gospel, for God. And so Paul's command is that we are not to be like Korah, that we shine as lights in the world and um, we are to emulate Jesus's humility, that that's the way to be exalted. And that is what God has called us to. So we've talked about a lot of things, but coming back to really, I think the, the core point is that Korah and his cohort, these um, these Reubenites who were leaders in the congregation and these 250, it says chosen men, men of renown, all of these people had high positions in God's economy. They were servants, uh, at least Korah's family, were servants of the most holy objects in worship to the most holy God. Without them, Israel could not have properly worshiped God. They had been chosen above the oldest sons of Levi to be these servants. And although they were not priests, they still had a very important role to play. And so they were chosen for this purpose, but it was not enough for them. They wanted the priesthood also. And um, I think that it's such an important, important thing to talk about and think about often is that serving is what's exalted in the kingdom of God. In our flesh, we tend to exalt leaders and I'm putting quote marks up leaders people who are in front people who are at the podium people who have blue check marks on their social media pages people who are looked at but God chooses who he wills to be servants and he often chooses those whom the world deems as unworthy those whom the world deems as dishonorable even and not worthy of being at the front he chooses those people whose hearts are humble before him and so we should not forget the the quintessential example of, of this and that's Jesus that God appointed the one who was worthy to receive glory over all to get that glory but the road to the glory was to be humiliated was to suffer was to serve and to even die for sins he did not commit now in the case of Korah and his family 
Dathan and Byram and their families, the judgment over uh, the judgment for their pride was extremely severe. The earth swallowed them up whole and closed over them. And that is a severe and very somber warning to us that selfish ambition and pride have no place in God's economy. God opposes the proud. That means he stands against those who are prideful. He actively works against those who are prideful. And so I think the question is for us, are we more interested in service or in status seeking? Are we more interested in promoting ourselves and pushing for the purpose that we have for ourselves, uh, which is putting ourselves at the front, at the forefront, seeking status and influence and power in worldly terms? Um, or are we more interested in pursuing God's calling for our lives? I have to constantly remind myself that I do not want to miss God's best for my life, that God forbid that I should that I should live as though I know better than God, that my idea of what will bring me joy and satisfaction is better than what God has for me. And we have to look again no further than the example of Jesus. In God's economy, those who humble themselves are those who will be exalted. And so just a final word of encouragement here. There is pride in all of us and there is selfish ambition in all of us. Whether that looks like clamoring for things that weren't promised us or whether that looks like a deep-seated envy. Whether that looks like seeking to be at the fore at all times and seeking that status and that influence. Whatever it looks like in your life, pride is probably something that you need to work on. And I wanted to encourage all of us that even though we need to humble ourselves, as Peter says in the last chapter of his first epistle, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, which is a word for or a term for God's providence. We need to humble ourselves under God's sovereignty. Let him put us where he wants us and choose us for the purposes he has for us. But at the same time, this process of humbling ourselves does not happen by ourselves. In this passage in Philippians 2, after Paul gets done praising the uh, the savior for humbling himself and then saying that the savior was exalted as a result of his humility he says so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling that's our part but then he says in verse 13 of Philippians 2, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so beating pride in our lives and cultivating humility in our lives is by surrendering to God, by cooperating with his Holy Spirit. It's a work that we have to do, that we have to do intentionally and actively to be killing pride in our lives. But it's also a work that God helps us with. He is the one who is at work in our hearts to cause us to desire this and to help us work towards achieving um that that um humility and so number 16 among many things teaches us that god's purposes for us are better than seeking power than seeking influence than promoting ourselves and building our own empires god's purpose and the road to glory that he has paid for us is always through humbling ourselves and through suffering but the promise is that on the other side we will be exalted we will be glorified and we will find favor with him the rest of that verse god is opposed to the proud says 
says, but he gives grace to the humble. And what a beautiful thing it is to receive grace from the sovereign God, the one who knows exactly what he's called us for and equipped us for that calling. And it's a calling that is holy, that is special, regardless of whether it's in the front. And so I'm praying that each of us would search our hearts and that we would seek the, to know the places where we have been dissatisfied, where we have been grumbling, where we have been um, seeking the priesthood and, and where our callings have not been enough for us. Thank you.